Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning stories, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. We're once again joined this week by one of our favorite guests, Megan Gorman. Megan is the founder and managing partner of Checkers Financial Management, a female-owned, high-net-worth tax and financial planning firm in San Francisco, California. She's also a senior contributor at Forbes and writes on personal finance and income tax. She's frequently quoted across prominent financial media outlets, including the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, CNBC, U.S. News, and of course, WealthManagement.com. Megan is currently serving on the Board of Trustees for the National Endowment for Financial Education. She's an adjunct professor of law at Golden Gate School of Law. It's great to have you back on, Megan. Thrilled to be here. And, and this is a pretty interesting and wild case, right? Yeah, I was surprised actually when you uh, when you pitched the storm to me. I didn't think it would be as crazy as it turned out to be, and then it actually turned into an issue of how to fit it all into one uh, quick intro. Which maybe getting a little bit ahead of myself. Uh, today's subjects are Hollywood heir Steve Bing and his children Damian Hurley and Kira Bonder. Damian is Bing's son with actress Elizabeth Hurley. Uh, Steve inherited hundreds of millions of dollars as an 18-year-old Stanford freshman from his grandfather, who was Manhattan real estate magnate Leo Bing. And uh, he unsurprisingly immediately dropped out and spent the rest of his life spending that money. Um, he financed films like Polar Express, gave generously to charity, and even lavishly supported his idol, rocker Jerry Lee Lewis, when he fell on hard times late in his life, actually, to the point that Lewis was driving around in a Rolls Royce despite being completely broke. Uh, unfortunately, Steve also spent heavily on partying and drugs, and he struggled with depression and substance abuse until he tragically took his own life in June of 2020. Reportedly, at that time, he only had about 300000 remaining to his name. In 1980, Steve's father, Dr. Peter Bing, had established a $600 million grandchildren trust. And notably, the trust stated that it would not benefit any person brought out of wedlock unless that person had lived for a substantial period of time as a regular member of the household. In March 2019, Peter went to court to cut Damien and his half-sister Kiribonder out of the trust on the basis that they were born out of wedlock. Liz Hurley and Kira's mother, former professional tennis player Lisa Bonder, with help from Steve, fought the action and won, at least temporarily. But Peter appealed, and in July of this year, his move to disinherit the two children was successful. So now instead, the trust will be divided between the two children of Steve's sister Mary, whose kids were not born out of wedlock. As an interesting aside, this is actually the second time Kira has lost out on a huge inheritance, as for most of her life, her name was Kira Kerkorian as she was believed to be the child of billionaire Kirk Kerkorian, a man credited with effectively creating the modern version of Las Vegas whole cloth. 
Eventually, the truth came to light, which is its own crazy story involving shady private investigators and DNA tests from stolen dental flaws, which disqualified from her inheriting from most of Kerkorian's fortune, although she still did get about $8 million. So, Megan, there's a whole lot to talk about here, but the issue at the center of it all is trusts and what they can and can't do. So let's start there. When we use the term grandchildren trust, what exactly are we talking about? Yeah, I mean, to your point, there's a lot to unpack here, and we could probably spend about three hours and still not get through it. But really, you know, I think when you think about a trust, a trust is a vehicle or vessel that allows you to pass assets to your descendants. And in this case, it was a trust set up to pass assets to uh, Peter Bing's grandchildren. And I bring this up because one of the interesting parts of this is this whole, this whole case is about family dynamics, right? It's dynastic family wealth, and it's people doing things to try to control other generations. And so I bring this up because Steve Bing was a beneficiary of his grandfather's trust, and his grandfather was Leo Bing. But these were trusts set up by Peter Bing for the benefit of his grandchildren. And usually when you set up trusts, you know, you have a choice whether you want them to be revocable or changeable or irrevocable. And if you are doing something for estate tax purposes, typically you're going down the path of an irrevocable trust. The benefits of doing an irrevocable trust range from setting guidelines on how you'd like the money to be used. How do you protect your the inheritance from you know, creditors and potential former ex-spouses or even using it to be goal-oriented, right? To help grandchildren you know, buy their first home or start a business. So there's a lot of value to using trusts and in particular, irrevocable trusts. The challenge, David, as you and I know from reading this case and from dealing with this all the time, is while trust might make sense, when you add family dynamics to it, chaos can ensue. And I think that's what we see here. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting example of sort of an older school of estate planning sort of crashing into why we have a sort of a newer school of estate planning emerging. Like the sort of these these kind of trusts, you know, you can call them incentive trusts. You can call them whatever you want, where they sort of have uh, strings attached to eventually what the beneficiaries are going to get. Are used to be like a, a very popular thing, and and when in the world where an estate planning attorney was only representing his client as you know the the, the grantor, and you know that just to make him happy, then something like this seems great, right? Because a grantor gets to control like literally exactly what he wants. But right. the more modern view of estate planning, where we look at it more in a dynastic, as a family dynamic, like you said, as something that's going to have to continue functioning in this family, when you look at something like this, it doesn't hold up anymore, right? Because it's, it's, this is just going to cause trouble. It's inevitable almost. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's the challenge with family dynamics, right? And, mm-hmm. and I think when we work with families today, you know, we're really also trying to figure out what is the family language? And I would tell you the Bing family language is one of dysfunction and dis- disinheritance, right? This is something that they seem to do is to each other. You know, we, you went through the broad strokes of the case, but Steve Bing, who was the father of Damien and Kira, had also disinherited them at different points in time in his will. 
So that's sort of their family dynamics. So I think the thing today for, for our listeners, I want to focus on three things. I want to talk about language. I want to talk about control. And I want to talk about something useful that we as practitioners can insert in our documents. And I hope that's okay with you, David. No, absolutely. Go right ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, I I think the thing when I first read this case and I was trying to digest it, the thing that struck me is the use of language. And language is tricky. Language determines a lot about what will happen with an estate plan. And I think in this case, everything's centered on the definition of a term called grandchild. Now that might seem obvious what a grandchild is, but you know Peter Bing had a very defined vision of who a grandchild would be. And it was clearly someone who was not born out of wedlock or had not lived with the parent. And so I think the thing is, what we have to remember is that when you are doing something like an irrevocable trust, where it is hard to change, if it, you have to really think through all the language. And in this case, I think when he was doing this back in 1980, I don't think based on the facts as we know, because we haven't actually seen the documents, I don't think he had a firm definition of grandchild in the documents based on what I've read here. And, you know, some of this is subject to interpretation based on him as trustee in this situation. So the the thing that we as practitioners have to remember is language is important. How we use it, who we include, this can all have an impact. And I think when we're working with clients, if we were working with Peter Bing, I think we would have to really specifically challenge him on this and say, look, you don't know what's going to happen over time. Do you want to be rigid on the language that you're choosing in your documents? Because ultimately, it can be incredibly hard to change that language as time goes by. Yeah, and even in something that makes this case interesting and sort of unique in a weird way is that this is kind of the best case scenario for one of these screw ups to happen, right? In that the grant, normally when estate planners get one of these language questions or what the definition of grandchildren is, the grantor is not alive. <laughs> you're dealing with the trust. You're trying to guess from documents and from past behaviors and things they've said and snippets of conversations, and, you know, parole evidence, if you will, that, you know, what they actually meant. Here, they're, they're lucky enough that this happened while the grantor was alive and could just tell you what he meant. And still, it's this big of an issue. And that's a years long legal fight, even though he's the man who wrote it, he's sitting right there. He'll tell you exactly what he meant, but it doesn't work that way. Once you get into irrevocable trusts. Correct. And one of the lower courts that found for the children before it was overturned talked about in the, in their case that there's really no ambiguity in the term grandchild, right? I mean, it's a very pretty distinct phrase and it has a very distinct meaning. But I think the thing is, I want to show Peter Bing some compassion here because at the end of the day, right, we're hearing most about this case from beneficiaries who have been disinherited. And so they're going to have the media sort of paint this a certain way. But when I put myself in Peter Bing's shoes, at the end of the day, it's his money. And it is up to him to determine how he wishes it to disperse. 
even though we as the public might feel that it's cruel or unfair, it is his right to give away his money as he sees fit. And so I think one of the tools I often like to use in the current day is I love to use things like letters to trustees. Now, they're not legally binding, but what I enjoy about using a letter to trustee is I would have encouraged Peter Bing to try to explain his reasoning, right? To put it out there when he had the documents drafted of what he was thinking and why the trustee should really understand it. And I think it would have really helpful because we're sitting here today in 2021, 41 years after this trust was drafted and a whole lifetime has occurred, right? So what he originally meant and felt and was directing back in 1980 might be very different from today. And that sort of brings me to my second point here, which is when we're working with clients, it's really important to talk to them about trade-offs. And what I mean by that is when you are going to get something, when you do a certain type of estate planning, typically that means you're going to give something up. Now, in most instances, if you do something that benefits you estate tax-wise, a lot of times you're giving up one or both of these things. One, greater flexibility for income tax. And two, what I think is almost more important, is control here. And so clearly, based on how the estate tax law was functioning in 1980, Peter Bing felt it was important for tax purposes to set these trusts up. But by doing that, he traded off the ability to control. And so I think as practitioners, it's really important to explain to clients that, look, once you set this in place, it's really hard to make changes. And thus, you might lose control over what you wanted to have happen. And the thing is, these participants here have large sums of money. They've got deep legal teams. But to some degree, when Damian Hurley and, and Kira Bing were, were born, he could have just said, okay, I set the trusts up. I really don't think they're my grandchildren, but I'm going to play it as it lays because I've given up control. Here, we have someone as a grantor who really wants to have his cake and eat it too. Yeah, I don't think that that's sort of the natural uh, give and take, right? The natural tension of this sort of estate planning where you're right, mm-hmm. to get it out of an estate, you're, you're likely going to have to give up control. But then when you, you want to explain that to your client and make sure that they understand what they're agreeing to do. But then by doing that, a lot of times, you know, these are you know first generation wealth owners, a lot of times builders like giving up control is scary to them. And then what they're going to want to do then is bake in as much control as they possibly can into the trust. And then that fights directly against the, the better interest of the trust, which is to remain flexible. And so you end up with this give and take between making sure your client knows what they're getting into and say that, okay, you're going to give up control. You have to understand that, but also don't get too crazy with putting too much what we call dead hand control. Mm-hmm. Trust now, sort of. You only get this money if you do X, Y, Z under you know under a full moon. To you know when you marry a Jewish person and go to college, and then you you, know, so you end up like a Brewster's Millions kind of situation. Okay. So this is you know for advisors and for planners, this is an important job, really an important tightrope to walk in between understanding what you're you know making your client understand what they're giving up, and also keeping them from overreacting to what they're giving up. Yeah. And I think that that goes to my third point here, right? Because I think if we were sitting there in 1980, there's one thing I probably would have added to the trust 
that probably would have saved everybody a lot of, I don't want to say heartache, because I think there was going to be heartache regardless based on the family dynamics here, but maybe it would have lessened the legal bills. And it's a concept that you know really comes from, from the UK. And I have to tell you, when I first started in the industry, I didn't see them that much. But over the past 20 years, the American estate planning system has really embraced this concept of a trust protector. And I think this is one of those instances where a trust protector could have been really, really valuable. Now, in sort of the broad strokes of things, the trust protector's job is to supervise the trustee. I want you to think about that. They are not the trustee. They are not the beneficiary. They are not the grantor. They are the protector of the trust. And it just always makes me think of King Arthur and Knights of the Round Table, right? They're there to protect the integrity of the trust. And, and this is important because they're basically standing on the outside of the trust. But there are times when they can use their power to help out. They can do that in approving changes in the language of a trust document, in terminating a trust, firing or removing a trustee, adjusting distributions based on the beneficiaries' lives, and even adding and removing beneficiaries. And language in the document is what gives the trust protector the authority. And I have to tell you, I've used trust protectors in the past to fix things on older documents when we're trying to get something done. And so I think a trust protector here could have solved a lot of these issues. They could have stepped in and helped with ambiguity in the word grandchild. They could have stepped in and, and said, look, okay, you know, the definition really is a true grandchild of wedlock and lived with the parents, but maybe we carve out a piece for these people who are also technically beneficiaries. They could have gone in there and really sort of helped with nuance. And so I think for all of us who are practitioners and advisors, we really need to think about this role of trust protector as a more serious role than I think a lot of times we, we think about it. I mean, I'll tell you in estate planning discussions, it's often quickly passed by, but they are very useful in complicated situations. Yeah, I mean, especially in those complicated situations, right? Everyone's initial instinct in, in hearing when they hear trust protector is like, well, we now what's the trustee for then? What, why do we now need this other person? But you know, the trust protector does, like Megan said, exactly what it says on the box. They protect the trust. And a lot of times they also protect the trustee because as in this modern world, as, as things have gotten more interconnected and, and money is all over the place and all over the world, in you know, globalized world we live in, it, it, being a trustee is, is increasingly becoming a job that sort of like, is not particularly, it's less and less feasible for one person, especially one like layman to do. And you know, the larger that and more complex the trust gets, the more impossible it gets. And there's a number of sort of catch-22 situations that a trustee under their fiduciary duty can find themselves in where they're given two decisions and both decisions are wrong. And they're, they're liable under both of them. And a lot of that comes up when you're having to do with sort of the best interest of the trust versus investing, also managing investments. You end up with these weird catch-22s of what's necessarily good for a long-term investment is not necessarily good for the short-term benefit of the trust. And they're looking at two, there's like a moving goalpost for them. But having a trust protector can help come in and protect the trustee a lot of the times from having that by either partitioning off the responsibility for certain different aspects of the of the investments or different aspects of the trust. And they can come in and manage, you know, sort of they're almost like the quarterback, the team manager 
over the top of, of, of what's going on here and, and can actually protect the trustee from a lot of these situations that through no fault of their own, they can really get themselves in trouble. And, and being a fiduciary is, is, is no small thing. And, and a lot of times it's taken very lightly in terms of, oh, you're going to be my trustee. Okay, sure, Uncle Bob. But it's, it's not that simple. No, it's not. And especially in these big, large asset bases, it is not uncommon to have a corporate trustee, right? And the, the beauty of the corporate trustee is they have departments filled with attorneys that can help mitigate the potential liability. The challenge of a corporate trustee is they read the documents black and white. And what I've always liked about a trust protector, and I had to use one in this instance, probably about seven years ago, is in that case where I was working on it, the trust protector knew the grantor very, very well before they had passed and was able to add nuance and stories that helped us to a solution in what could have become a highly fraught situation. So I'm not saying that this situation would have been easily fixed by a trust protector. I do think it would have been helpful. But I also think we are living in a day and age of difficult family dynamics. And so if you do, and and one of the estate plans I was thinking about when I was reading this one is Jackie Kennedy's. And, And David, I don't know if you remember this, when Jackie Kennedy passed, it was because she lived in New York, her will was probated. It was part of the public record. She specifically excluded her sister in her will. And they were both very, very close as sisters. But, you know, she basically said in her estate plan, I leave nothing to my sister, Lee Radzivel, for reasons that she knows. And I think the thing is, first of all, the language there was very clear, but it was also very clear that she just didn't want her sister to inherit. And I always am struck by that because it tells you a little bit about their family dynamics. And if you're working with a client who has those potential family dynamics, it is important to really try to figure out the dynamics and think about how certain estate plan scenarios could play out and And walk your client through it. Yeah. And it's also important to anticipate that, you know, when you're disinheriting, that carries a certain emotional weight, regardless of the reason. I mean, there's many reasons to disinherit a, that a grantor might want to disinherit someone from their will or from their trust, but they, they range from, in this case, you know, I don't actually think you're my grandchild to, to, I hate you now. I don't want you to have it to just, you're rich. You don't need the money. You know, you don't need the money. You don't want it. I'm going to give it to somebody who actually needs it. And, but when you bring all those things in and you tell somebody they're disinherited, there's an emotion behind it, but it has this negative connotation where I'm not giving you anything that can start fights, even if it's not really something that's meant to be fought about. Correct. And, and, you know, in this case, in particular, Elizabeth Hurley and Lisa Bonder, who are the mothers of the children who have been disinherited, they're very media savvy. And so a simple Google search will turn up a whole host of articles that paint the big Bing family in a very negative light when they clearly had a vision for how their inheritance was supposed to pass. So I think, David, my takeaway from this goes back to the three things, which is think about the language you put in documents. Words have meaning. You know, we've got to think about how it will play out like a disinheritance provision. 
Think about the fact that if you're going to get some tax benefits, you also are giving up something, and in this case, control. And you really want to understand what vehicles are available to you, like a trust protector. And I think in looking at this case, that sort of is the big issues that that is in, that are in front of us. Yeah, and I think this case, in addition to all the trust issues that we've talked about here, you know, on this show many times we've talked about avoiding probate and privacy and why people might want those things. And I think this is kind of a perfect example of that. Because like you said, you've got these media savvy complaints coming out about the plain language of this trust. And it's very easy to sort of just look at a legal document that's written in, like you said, the black and white letters of it. And everyone in the world can all of a sudden have an opinion on it about what happened. And that may reflect correctly the family dynamic, or it may be completely incorrect in reflecting the family dynamic. But the point is that all of a sudden, these things are out. And one of the you know, great powers of trust generally is that if you weren't going to fight about it, they stay private. And, and this is kind of why you want to keep it private, because it's just so easy to get this very confused narrative and these very sort of twisted and, and turning sort of conflicting accounts. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the trouble in these sort of situations. I think the thing is, it, it sounds, the, the one thing we didn't talk about here in this case is that there also seems to be in the family dynamics, a little bit of favoritism taking place. And in some of the things that what Hurley said and Lisa Bonder said is they felt that the, that Peter Bing and his daughter, Mary, we're really trying to strong arm everybody. And at the end of the day, none of this is a, a positive outcome for, for the people involved. Everybody leaves frustrated, even the ones who sort of win in this, because it's just, it's just not a healthy situation. Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, you know, that's all the time we have for today. But I'd, I'd like to thank Megan Gorman for, as always, being a fantastic guest. Thanks for having me, David. I really appreciate being on. And I look forward to being on again in the future. We look forward to having you again. And for all our listeners, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me, on the next episode of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.